Rachel Zhang. And welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a song of ice and fire, episode 97. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Holy shit, episode 97. 97 episodes of us talking about a song of ice and fire. But our first episode covering the Arya Hota chapters. Yes, this is the captain of guards. I want to call it the captain of the guards. I hate it. I, I, I do I, too. This is my biggest meta. Like, I wrote captain of the guards on this dock, and I just crossed it out with, like, the, <laughs> the cross through a bajillion times, and I hate it. I just... It, it, I get it, I guess. I don't get it. I think but. everyone kind of slips and calls it the captain of the guards. Well, it's captain of guards, so I hope that you all get it right, because I am in a Song of Ice and Fire purist. Okay? You know, Get it right, Eliana. We've got some interesting news, though. Some exciting things that we want to say to some people. Speaking of guards... Yes. Oh my gosh. I want to give... We want to give the biggest congratulations at the top to one of our Girls Gone Canon alumni. You may actually know them from Westeros Whenverly, Tana Ford, who is yes. a Hugo Award winner and an Eisner Award winner for her wonderful work on LaGuardia. She was on Radio Westeros for Brienne this weekend. She had a really amazing fashion hour, actually. Yeah, that's right. I listened to you, Tana. I heard you. And yeah, big congrats. That's so big. I will admit, and I don't want to make you jealous because I know that there's something that she's working on for you, Eliana, but Tana sent me something special in the mail. Did you know this? Yes, I did. You already told me, but I like that you're saying it again. It's important that everybody listening hears it for the first time because Tana sent me a beautiful Cersei uh, artwork and it is gorgeous. I will have it hanging hopefully soon enough with some frames, but... It's got some green wildfire going on in the etches. It's just, yeah, it is a, it's a hot, no pun intended piece. So talented artist. I have a Hugo Award winning, Eisner Award winning piece of art in my home is what I'm trying to tell you. Okay, this didn't win the award, but she did. So it's close enough. No, super excited. Uh, And like her just joy is just amazing. And, you know, I, I think a lot of you know what the Hugo Awards are. I mean... We're all here for this series, but like the Eisner Award is like, it is one of like the awards for comic books. Like this is such a huge deal and I'm just so happy for her. Like she's just such an awesome artist and awesome person in general. One of like probably the nicest, most cheerful people, funniest people too. Yeah. Heck, I mean, this is, uh, I don't know. This is the Eisner Award's been going since 88, I want to say. Really? Uh, so... Yeah, yeah, both. I think those in the Harvey Awards were first created in 1988. I want to say it was after the Kirby Awards stopped or something like that, mm. but it is it is definitely a big deal. So we'll leave some links on where you can find Tana Ford's work below, uh, and maybe I'll post some pictures on our social medias of my beautiful Cersei art or something if she says it's okay. We'll find out. Yeah, and... She's not done an Aswaf episode with us, but she has done the His Dark Materials episode with us because she also is a fan of that series and also made a fantastic artwork back in the day. Early, early Tana Ford artworks that she got signed by Philip Pullman yes. in one of the scenes. And there's something else I don't think we can talk about quite yet. It's hush-hush, but 
Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. cool, his dark materials y coming from her in the future. So can't wait. Love Tana. Please check Tana out. So congratulations. Congratulations, Tana. Um, congratulations also to you, Chloe. We got an email of note from. <laughs> so Milo says that they appreciated the Jon Snow <laughs> voice making her a prize. I think the best part last week of that was A, no one was expecting it. I wasn't B, expecting it. That's what I was saying. B is like, as much as all of you at home were not expecting me to bust into Jon Snow, Eliana's pure joy, your face turned from like shock to like, oh, best day of, like, it was like I told you we were going to Disney World for the first time. You know what I mean? Like, you were just like, in the morning? Like, right now? Uh, and crazier than that i didn't know that i was gonna do wow. it. you know like yeah and earlier i tried to do it like on the spot today about six hours ago just because i was thinking about it and uh, i couldn't so i think really you all are the magic that I mean, makes my john snow voice run friendship is magic <laughs> you know maybe the true song of ice and fire the friends another email we got from one of our friends that we made along the way because friendship is magic, according to My Little Pony. Uh, we got an email from our friend Lo, a bit back, who said, In the upcoming Hota chapter, gender and sexuality are quite prominent, as is disability. There is discussion about what kind of man Doran is for not avenging his brother. It's brought up in the Aries chapter as well. Definitely go check out Lowe's essay on Sorella. We won't linger too much on Sorella in this chapter. We have a few callouts, but this essay is great about Sorella, Alaris, the Sphinx, uh, these boundaries. Yes, Traversing Boundaries by Lowe the Lynx. It's wonderful. They did a great job on this essay, so we'll link it below. It is on their Tumblr. And yeah, Lowe sent us a really great in-depth email talking about a lot of things in Dorne, but definitely check out this essay, which I think is one of their latest ones on Alaris, so. Yes, I do know for a fact they are working on a colonialism in His Dark Materials mm. essay right now that's going to be awesome, though. So if you're into His Dark Materials, keep an eye out for some of those themes they are going to be exploring. And speaking of His Dark Materials, this month's Patreon episode is going to be a His Dark Materials, but technically not, technically the Book of Dust episode, but within a material world because we are material girls, and we're doing <laughs> chapters. We should have fucking called... God damn it, has someone done that? Has someone done that? Anyways, his I dark mean, material girl is gone, can't... Okay. That's really smart, actually. My one of my, I used to have a cosplay page on Facebook, you know, like all the real um, anime girls do these yeah. days. And it was Materia Girl. Named after oh. Final Fantasy Materia. So Very I cool. like where your head's at. I do. Yeah, I'm really excited to get back to LaBelle Sauvage. It's weird to be doing it on an every other month thing right now. But yeah. as we go forward, we're about to finish The Subtle Knife, the second book in the main trilogy. Uh, so we'll probably full blast LaBelle Sauvage for a little bit until uh, we're too caught up with the TV show. Yeah, and just to be clear, we are going to be covering chapters four through six of LaBelle Sauvage. We covered already chapters one through three on our Patreon right now, so be sure to check that out. Yeah, those will end up public eventually, so keep an eye out for when we switch them to public this 
autumn. And that's not the only thing that is coming right now for patrons as we jump into August. We are working on rolling out something new, something exciting. If you tuned into last month's A Song of Ice and Fire Patreon episode on life under the regency of Aegon III's regents, we talked about something fun for our patrons It's going to be starting for Chestnut patrons first. We'll be beta testing very soon. We'll be sending out a message to those patrons, but we will be running a Discord channel. What is Discord? Well, we are still learning. It is like a video game, Slack, AOL instant messenger chat. No, it's like a Yahoo instant messenger group, but not better, much better. 20 years later, doing much better. Uh, Basically, there's channels you can chat. We're going to do some streaming. Uh, Eliana and I have been very into video games during this crazy pandemic going on in the 2020s. We have been into video games playing Animal Crossing. I'm playing The Sims. Eliana is a boss at Dark Souls. Just kidding. She's really bad, but I love watching her be bad. You know what I mean? Like, it's really. We just watched her be bad for like an hour. It's a it's an it's a zen experience watching me die to the same bosses literally mm-hmm. for an hour mm-hmm. every time every time just sitting there just like hmm well what if you did it differently next time Eliana Eliana no <laughs> no dies yeah we're gonna do some streaming hang out with y'all uh definitely have some plans for some mini episodes uh we'll have capabilities to do kind of voice chat and video chat with everybody and a bunch of you know that we did have an issue with youtube where our youtube channel got suspended for really no good reason we have no clue what the reason is uh hashtag free girls gone canon but because we don't we're gonna try out discord so chestnut patrons keep an eye out for more details coming to you on patreon and uh we'll move from there yeah maybe you can uh do some final fantasy streaming I honestly really need to. Really need to. Like, I know that sounds silly, but I really, really need to get onto that. Yeah, I think the most I played was Bravely Default on the 3DS, which is technically not Final Fantasy, and some of Final Fantasy X, and I got fucking stuck on fucking zombie Seymour, and damn. Seymour's such a Jorah Mormont. Anyways, um, so. Ariel Hota. Not a Jorah Mormont. Not a Jorah Mormont. I... The Captain of Guards is a very good chapter. It is. May I just add, A Feast for Crows is a very good book. Before we go into the lightning round, I just want to remind you all that, like, this is the third chapter of A Feast for Crows, and yes, George is trying to jam-pack all these plots halfway through the story, but, like... Yeah. I'm here for it. I love, I think the Doran stuff is beautiful. I know you were going to talk in the beginning of the chapter about some of just the sensory stuff going on, and it's mm-hmm. seriously gorgeous and fragrant, and it's like you can close your eyes and imagine you're there. It's very fantasy. Is it problematic in areas? Yes. Yeah. If you've listened to our REN chapters, you'll already know about that. Uh, some of our Quentin chapters might have the tinges of it, and we talked a lot last week critiquing some of George's kind of, you know, Georgisms. I don't know. Eh. So some I could take, some I could lose, right, when it comes to Dorne. But I think overall, I Dorne's a really good addition and exploring Hota's lens, seeing what he sees. I don't think we have enough in this book. I don't know. We'll talk, of course, of some of our predictions for the wins a winner later, later and next week, too. 
I don't know exactly what it holds, but I hope we get a little more Aerio before he, you know, yeah. I really do hope we get more of um, his his opinions on things. And, you know, I think there's to an extent some of the way that this is written comes from, of course, the history of how the Dorn chapters eventually came into being, right? Because mm-hmm. originally George was going to – and I think this is part of how we got Ario and Ari's chapters being our introduction to Dorne. Yeah, I assume that Ariane and Quentin were like always going to be characters eventually, right? But mm-hmm. – well, actually, no. Quentin was not sure. Quentin, I think, came later, but I assume Ariane. Later, yeah. Ariane. So Quentin wasn't sure, but I assume Ariane was going to be like George was going to do this like long, twenty or thirty page uh, sort of prologue, talking about the politics of things that had happened throughout the rest of the kingdoms and the aftermath of what happened in A Storm of Swords and launch into his five year gap. Then he was like, "Fuck, fuck my life. It doesn't work." And so we have these chapters, but. As you said, a lot of them are really good. They lead us into a lot of the political machinations really well and also really help set the scene in a place that we're entering for the first time. Yes. And as we dive into that, there isn't a ton that we're going to go into before A Feast for Crows about Ariohota. Uh, we are doing a series for our Patreon episodes. All of our patrons that are in the Stranger tier and above may have listened to a few of those episodes already, but Norvos will be one, of course, that we cover, which is where Ariohota is from. So first, before we get into a Captain of Guards and Ariohota overview, we'll talk lightning round with the prologue. Pate the pig boy dreams of marrying Rosie, but the gods are not good. The Prophet Aaron Greyjoy heralds the coming of a king's moot, the first in too long a time. That brings us to Eriohota. Trained by bearded priests in the free city of Norvos, Eriohota has protected Lady Malario and her family since he was young. He took his vows at age 16, much like a boy who we've just talked about before. Uh, serve, obey, and protect were the vows that he swore. Some 20 years after his vows, he grew to love Dorne in its strange ways and even stayed on as captain of Dorne Martell's guard, even when Malario left to go back to Norvos. Yes, and now in Captain of Guards, Ario tends to his prince, who is filled with regret, as well as gout. He plays guard as the Sand Snakes each ask him to go to war for their father Oberyn's death, and by chapter's end... Doran's long game has changed. He asks Ario to lock up the Sand Snakes. Before we launch into all this, you know, I do want to say, as this is to an extent our overview on Ario Hota and his background, that I think there's a lot of things about Norvos that really make you think when it comes to the way that it's set up, as well as the Sparrows, the Poor Fellows, and the Faith Militant that are going to come, again, to the forefront in this book, considering Norvos's theocracy. Yeah, if you lay a dance with dragons next to a feast for crows, which is, of course, as we know how it was originally supposed to be, uh, you see that bigger picture in general, too. You look at Melisandre, right? That's a great person to kind of juxtapose from this religious and background of slavery. I know you're going to talk a lot more about this kind of religious slavery that Ario entered later, and I am ready to hear you then. But first, let's jump into Captain of Guards. The blood oranges are well past ripe, the prince observed in a weary voice when the captain rolled him onto the terrace. After that, he did not speak again for hours. 
It's true. Ario Hota could smell blood oranges from his stance above the prince. Doran, of course, is in his wheeled chair beneath the trees, and the soft plopping noise of rotten blood oranges punctuates their conversation, but is eventually interrupted by the stamp of boots, Obara's footing. Yeah, and as you were saying up top, like, the opening of this chapter is incredibly sensual, like, not in a sexual way, but literally it's appealing to all of those different senses. You get a an idea of all the colors, all the sights that are going on. Uh, I think a little bit later, they're like, yeah, two of the kids were face down. They're like sunbathing and a bunch <laughs> of the other ones are running around. I'm like, hilarious, hilarious. <laughs> Just lying around. Imagine outside. Anyways. Um, and again, What's like outside, <laughs> right? The smells, uh, Ario talks a lot about the different scents that are going on, including the blood oranges, but a couple of the other ones. And then a lot of the sounds. Sound plays a really big part of this introduction. And I think that's kind of significant, right? It, it helps give us an introduction into the sand snakes, but also Ario speaks very little, as to an extent. As part of his station, but it makes sense that he would pay attention then to a lot of these sensations or that they would be a big part of his story, especially as, you know, later on, we're going to find that the chapter is called The Watcher for his next chapter that we do of his. And it also speaks to not just like his all of that and his station in life, but Ario's actual skill an observation because he knows who is who by their footsteps, something that makes sense. Like, you know, he, he knows who's the maester, who's Abara, but I think it's kind of a nice parallel when you think about another Ari character. I know that Arya's like, wow, Ari's in my name kind of sound alike. But I'm like, oh, Ario and Arya, their names kind of sound alike. And she also comes to rely on a lot of those different senses, especially, you know, with the sort of training that the faceless men are give her and her going blind at the end of this book. And the big fandom joke is Ario Hota is the camera that rides. And this goes back to like 20, like what, 2012, I think he was being called that. Even back to that, I think the earliest trace I've seen really? on the internet is like 2012, 2013. Not kidding. Long time ago, back in the day, back when we were all babbies here. It's it's interesting because that skill of observation you bring up with Arya, I totally noticed a few Arya parallels in this and you never thought little Arya Stark would be that big of a parallel, but I don't know, I guess Death Cult and Free Cities. Uh, <laughs> those are those are broad strokes, right? They're kind of similar, depending on the person. I think the the idea of like being like, you know, the mantra she repeats to herself constantly. Oh yeah. That is what Ario has to embody, right? He has to be skilled enough to be able to catch these things. And as we're about to see with him with Obara and kind of his emotions with her, he's used to that. She is the very brusque, very angry, very heated from this walk that she is walking. It's easily heard. He knows her urgent steps. She walks too fast. We get this line, she's chasing after something she can never catch. The prince had told his daughter once in the captain's hearing. Uh, her footsteps are very different from the Maester and Maester Calliote's softer steps that trail behind. So I think something about hearing those steps is very important because we don't get a lot of other camera roles like Sansa, a great POV. I know I've talked about it before, but uh, nobody suspects the butterfly in Poor Quentin at Ice and Firecon 2017 did this panel about cameras in the story and how Ariel Hota and Sansa and many of these characters are more cameras for part of their kind of arc. And I find that very interesting. I 
that's interesting. Yeah, and you know, of course, cameras do have, I, I think that they do have a perspective that is chosen, right? It is still an opinion in how you portray things. And one of those that this chapter really focuses on in the lens, zooms in on, is those oranges. Yes, and look, we talked a little bit about the oranges Oh, God, during Ariane's plot, I think we actually literally said the phrase, something along the lines of, we don't have to go into this symbolism because everyone's gone into it. Too late, bitches. We're going into the symbolism. It's 2020 now. (laughs) Uh, I'm a different podcaster than I was a year ago, unfortunately. (laughs) It's our podcast and we can do whatever the fuck we want. (laughs) There are other podcasts, y'all. Something. I, I thought I had yeah, something Yeah, you can't say there. Girls Gone Sorry. Wild in this, Eliana. I no, know you thought it. I was going to say, can't. like, off-road, but I'm like, no, this is still on-road for us. And I was like, no, I don't know. I, I had no good jokes. Sorry. <laughs> so let's talk orange fruit. Thank you, Eliana, for that wonderful introduction to oranges. Orange fruit is quite obviously a metaphor. <laughs> if you haven't caught this in the books... But if this is your first read, we're a reread podcast, so this is this doesn't point at you. This isn't about you. But if you've read it a few times and you're sitting here going, mind blown, oranges are a metaphor. Wow. This is going to be a big day for you. So I want you to buckle up, get a drink of water, maybe a shot of vodka. That's the Chloe diet. And we'll get through it together. I'll hold your hand through some orange symbolism. So oranges are often used as a metaphor, whether biblically, uh, whether through some mythology, which we're going to talk about as something beautiful. But if it's rotten, that's something corrupt, damaged, or destroyed, right? So that's a rotting orange fruit. Uh, It's often associated with the sun, right? Because it's a big ol' orange flaming fruit, which makes a lot of sense when being juxtaposed against House Martell. And generally, if you see a rotting orange, it means that your plans are going to fall apart and you're going to lose your goal in life. And it's going to symbolize failure. Sadness, despair, failure. You know what I'm saying? You picking up what I'm laying down? Rotten fruit? Yeah, that's what it means. Uh, a lot of that, of course, is biblical. It comes from the kind of Garden of Eden vibes. If you listen to our His Dark Materials episode, we've probably bored you on any of those, whether it's from the first book through whatever with biblical stuff. I don't usually bring as much biblical stuff into Aswath, but my catechism uh, years, they call for it. Matthew seven eighteen. we even have the line in the Bible, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's pretty intense. It's an intense philosophy on trees. Uh, It's not looking great for the water gardens. You know what I'm saying? Like for for Dorn, for Blood Orange. I mean, look at Baroque times, right? Orange and lemon trees looking at you, Lemongate, represent high-class, prominent social status. So nobility and royalty were proud of exotic orangeries. Uh, The Sun King himself, Louis IV, he was fond of orange trees. He had his own orangerie in Versailles. We look at Hera's orchard in Greek mythology. That was the orchard where a single grove would produce golden apples. The deities brought nuptial presents for Zeus and Hera. Gaia brought her branches of golden apples. 
Hera begs her to plant them, and she did, creating her orchard. Uh, the Hesperides were supposed to be tending to the grove, but sometimes they liked to sneak an apple on the side, right? And since Hera didn't trust them, she ended up placing, this is totally normal, right? An immortal 100-headed dragon hmm, as a safeguard. Normal. This is the same garden where the Apple of Discord came from that Ares took to basically start the Trojan War. And later, later, later on, many realized the golden apples might actually have been oranges because before Middle Ages, they didn't have oranges in Europe and in the Mediterranean. It wasn't something they had a name for. So to this day, because of that assumption, the botanical name for citrus in Greek is Hesperidoid. And the word for oranges is porticali, after Portugal in Iberia, where hmm. the garden was said to be. That's very interesting. Yeah, the Apple of Discord, did Ares stream on there at all? or um... <laughs> uh, Ares was, Ario Hota was streaming uh, with Ares. Yeah. Ares Ocart on Discord. They were playing The Sims live. He was streaming about the Bla Doran. Oh Martel, wow! Oh I went God. a lot. I went really no. far there. <laughs> I went Don't really want far it. there. Chloe's covering herself with her Hello Kitty blanket. She's like, I can't. Oh. Ario halts at the triple arch, brandishing his long axe to block the way. It's six feet long, mountain ash, and Obara cannot go around it. And Ario declares the prince does not wish to be disturbed. His voice is described as a bass grumble, thick with the accents of Norvos. And I like that. We don't know anything, really, as far as the accents about Norvos. I, I'm i going to guess. We'll talk way more about this in the Free Cities Norvos episode, I'm sure. But I, I'd imagine it's a bastardized Valyrian dialect, which is kind of what most of the Free Cities is. But it feels more rough, and I think there's definitely something to be said of where they are near the, the road that would have led to Valyria, and also where they are in location to, like, Ib and uh, Ibanese trading and stuff. And I expect that there has to be... George hasn't, like, specifically written, here is all the slave trade that went back and forth, and this did this, that, yet. He might still be of time. Uh, yeah, that's why it's, we're nine years into where we are. <laughs> we got fire and blood. No one gets to complain. I'm just kidding. Anyway, <laughs> we meet Obara, Oberyn's eldest daughter, who is close to 30 with close-set eyes, apparently rat-brown hair. Apparently Ario Hota has uh, strong opinions on Obara's hair, and the worn leather of her riding clothes is the softest thing about her. She has a coiled whip and a shield of steel and copper, and this time Obara has left her spear outside. Obara is quick and strong, and Arya thinks that she's no match for him, but also Obara doesn't know that, and he's like, I really don't want to see her blood on the marble. We're going to talk about this as we go along, but this is one of the moments in this chapter that I feel like is some foreshadowing, right? Uh, we have a good amount of Hota constantly thinking, Oh, I w I'd be able to take down the Sand Snakes, and I wouldn't want to have to kill them if they got near me. But we also have Ariohota being like, that's my little princess and her cousins. So I feel like duty might get in the way of some stuff later, but we'll come back to that. I do like the description of Obara here. There's mm -hmm. a line, her face had been stone before he spoke, then it hardened. Obara, sand, 
means business, bitches. Uh, it, there's a really good use in this phrase, right, of stone and hardened. Because in this chapter, it's like the ghost of Sand Snake, past, present, and future, visits Doran, right? Like he's. she's starts off and he's got Obara and Obara's just like mean and she goes from being mean to meaner but she wants vengeance she is the most bloodthirsty in her approach for vengeance and right here we even get it her face was stone then it hardened isn't there something in a feast for crows with stone that has to do with vengeance hmm yeah there's that it's also in storm it's it's quite a bit quite a bit (laughs) wait wait lady stoneheart I don't know her. I don't know her. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's definitely a good catch and a great connection with that. And also, you know, maybe even with a... I think there's an Elaine stone somewhere, too. Hmm. And I, it's also... I mean, the line that you called out, I think, is also just such another great example of that imagery that we were talking about that characterizes the rest of this, like, this entire chapter. A lot of people think that Dorne comes out, I don't know, too animated and cartoony um the, i mean the show it came out completely cartoon and i think there is a lot of cartoon in these chapters There's it's a lot also in that, the like, characters i think yeah it's in the characters and i wouldn't even say it's cartoon so much as it is animated and i think there's definitely a factor of like george trying to deliver the most exposition and the most world building and the most character building in the smallest amount of time, right? Like, yeah. he's putting a lot in here. And they're great chapters, and I do wish we had just more of them. But I don't. Like, I, I want the books to happen, but they're so good, and I feel like there's so much more here, and I know, I mean, I know George has so much more of these within him, but... Yeah, I agree. I think we're gonna get a lot more. I mean, we have to, you know, in theory, when we get the book. But, um... Right now, Obara is ignoring Mr. Calliot in his ear and continues pressing Hota, asking, well, you know, does the prince know that Oberyn is dead? Nario answers, yes, there's been a bird. Aryo actually had to be the one to deliver the letter himself, sensing what was in the letter, because Mr. Calliot was like, I think I know it's in this. And he's like, Aryo, you do it. You do it. (laughs) Also, can you take the letter back shot? Thanks, Aryo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know because I read it. All afternoon, he'd sat with the parchment in his lap, watching the children at their play. He watched until the sun went down and the evening air grew cool enough to drive them inside. Then he watched the starlight on the water. It was moonrise before he sent Hota to fetch a candle, so he might read his letter beneath the orange trees in the dark of night. (sighs) You know... We talked a bit about Starks above, and this is very sad, right? He's, he's, this is Southern Starks. He's sitting there thinking of his dead family, thinking of all they've suffered under the moonlight, under these oranges that are slowly but surely turning to rot and plopping down beside him because it's too late and everything's going to turn to ash. <laughs> yeah, it's sad. Like a lot of Doran. Is really sad. And, you know, you were talking about this even before, like, we started recording, and I... There's a lot of feels here. I feel that, you know, as you're saying about them being Southern Starks in a way, like, Doran's pondering in silence, it, it does remind me a lot about 
Ned Stark and the regrets that he has. We see how trauma really informs him. And we're looking at Doran right now, having lost yet another person in his family and getting that news. And we, we've we discussed how Ned is just so traumatized by the loss of his family and also PTSD, maybe, from what he experienced mm-hmm. during the rebellion. But also, like, at the same time, when it comes to Ned's own circumstances, especially as the second son, like, what could Ned really have done to stop what happened to Rickard and Brandon, right? And what more could he have done to save Liana? And I think that there's a big factor of all this misfortune that befalls Ned's family that is just completely out of his hands. It, it it was just very unfortunate. Like, Ned couldn't have done anything to save his father or Brandon, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no one thought that was going to happen. Whereas for Doran, I think that a lot of the time that he spends pondering, he must he must sort of wonder what ha- if he didn't seek to punish Ares, right, for his mistreatment of Elia. If he's like, man, if I hadn't been so petty... Right, and it, I don't think what he did was petty, but like maybe he thinks like, what if I hadn't been so petty and I had sent my troops? Would my sister be alive? Would like my nephew and my niece be alive? The children, uh, just like the, these children that he's watching right now, and maybe he's also like, what if I had just like sucked it up and tried to make the journey and gone instead of Oberyn, even though he's in a lot of pain? Or if like, would his brother be alive? What if he had sent someone else? Right. And you get a lot of these contrasts with how this trauma affects each of their relationships with their children as well. Like, you see that Ned's really reluctant to send his children away to be wards. He wants to keep them close. He's like, no, why would we send them away to be wards somewhere? Like, they're too young and we got to keep them close, right? Uh, whereas Doran thinks that there's more to be done for his kids. He thinks that what's best for them is to set them up with plans and like sends them away to get them into those positions and ends up losing his marriage, his wife, over these decisions. That's another person that he's kind of lost. And so these are two men who are very differently affected by the trauma and loss in their lives, but still have it. That's a really good call because they did the exact opposite thing because of this trauma. And I mean... Doran had Lewin in the capital, right? Lewin right. Martell was in the capital, and he thought that would be enough. Uh, and I mean, to a certain extent, you know, if it's not enough, what can you do besides march your troops there? And how fast can you really get them there from Dorn? Right? That's the other thing is like, by the time they get there, will he be too late or will he be on time? And of course, as we know we're probably looking at a very similar situation of those Dornish armies that are waiting in the Prince's Pass in Boneway, marching to King's Landing, marching north, and, well, marching north, the west than north, but we're looking at them kind of, you know, the opposite thing happening, them actually getting there in time, that decision being made, even though it might be by Ariane making that decision, uh, and them getting there on time for once and seeing the difference. Even if it's a very fleeting moment of victory, I think that they will have a victory for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just sad. (laughs) The regular tell makes me sad. Well, buckle up because we're going to get sadder soon. First, though, back to revenge. Obara wants action. She wants accountability. She's like, every man in Dorne is asking, what will the prince do to avenge his brother's murder? 
but Ariel keeps saying to her, the prince does not want to be disturbed. Yeah, I find that Ario just has a very interesting role in relationship, though, with Doran. And I think some of it, like, is he's kind of in something kind of like a Kingsguard role. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen a lot of Kingsguard play this role. I'm sure that they do, right? Because they're always like, oh, a Kingsguard was stationed out of X person's door uh, in terms of, like, acting like a bouncer. Because I we do see Osmond Kettleblack do that for Cersei at the Sept when Jamie returns during A Storm of Swords. And I think Ario does do that. But along with fulfilling that role as a king's guard, I think that, I mean, the title of the chapter is the captain of guards. So Ario Hota is maybe something kind of like a lord commander, but because of his past as a slave soldier in the Holy Guard in Norvos, I guess he doesn't feel as empowered to speak out like the lord commander might. He doesn't partake in the same sort of decision making, it seems like, that a lord commander might do at a small council. And I think there's, to an extent, which, like, maybe Ario is giving us a perspective of an Unsullied, despite mm. not having, I think, the same sort of violence committed onto his body in the same way. Though, obviously, there is violence in that he's, like, forced to fight. But, yeah. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk more about it in the context of Ares, of course, since we chose them next to each other for very obvious reasons, right? They're both in and both protecting their little princess. Talking about... John, Jamie, Ares, and Ario, all in the same stretch, was on purpose. Like, we chose this very much so purposefully to bring to you all because duty, right? Like, duty, duty being the death of honor, uh, <laughs> duty is very big to serve, protect, obey. These are all rules that get played with in these arcs, in these kind of penal colonies that these men have joined. And Ariel's in a very unique position because he left as, you know, trained as this soldier by the bearded priests, but then he came to Dorne where things are different and the people are different. And I definitely think that he gets lost in his youth. George does bring us a little bit of that youth, right? He thinks about how he had come here from Norvo so long ago and he had obeyed the priests and they might be gray and And now he's gray and scarred, but he is still strong, even in the context of kind of what he's been through this journey with this family in Dorne, because that's what he is. He's the royal family's guard. I mean, that's what he is. How is he different from a king's guard? And he seems to feel like he is. Is he still a slave? Does he get paid? Yeah, I think that's like something that I'm wondering. Is he kind of like a knight, right? And that he has freedom, right? I I mean, in Dornish culture, it seems like they're... They might not be the kind of people to impose, like, wow, we're going to set up a system where you can't have sex, mm-hmm. as opposed to um, maybe other parts of Westeros. I don't know, unless they also believe that that's important for loyalty or whatever. But I'm just like, did Melario free him? Or is he still, like, serving the Dornish family in that sort of extent as... A slave. It seems he chose to continue serving them from the way the chapter words it, but it's like there's quite obviously no explanation of like is there currency exchange? He gets a nice quarters, I'm sure, but like he's captain of the guards, so I mean, if we look at you know yeah. any captain of the guards throughout Westeros, I'd imagine it's supposed to be similar, but it's adorned, so nothing similar. And, like, a Lord Commander, right, is, I mean, the the commander of 
the gold cloaks, right, isn't sworn to celibacy. But a Lord Commander of the King's Guard, as part of the King's Guard, is a Lord Commander of the Night's Mm -hmm. Watch, as part of the Night's Watch is, yet, I don't know, I just realized there's this really ambiguous area in which Ario Hota, I I don't know that he's, if he's, like, a slave or not to the Martells, especially because they seem like they might be less likely to be okay with that, but, I mean, they obviously weren't because Malario came over with, I guess, her slave soldier. He was assigned to their family originally right like to malario's family so like to me it's like i don't think he's a slave now he's choosing but at the same time isn't that technically like where would he go so yeah i mean that's the problem is there's no fix for slavery right right? like there's no rehabilitation for Ario Hota, there's no, would you, here's your choice, Ario, would you like to go somewhere else? Like, what is he going to do as an ex-slave with no money, no land, no nothing? Yeah. So I guess the best choice for slaves, which is garbage, is that, like, they just hope they get good masters, or they hope they get good people who stop treating them like slaves. Yeah, and, like, in Westeros, I guess it's technically illegal, but that doesn't mean- Shit. <laughs> it is to an extent, and obviously, like, the Iron Islands screwed around this, and I know this is a controversial- thing that I'm going to say, but there are times, and I'm not saying that this is the what's happening to Ario Hota per se, mm-hmm. but something that was in the back of my mind that I um, thought of is there was this um, piece that came out a few years ago in The Atlantic. It was a biographical short story, um, and it was by a journalist, Alex Dizon, and it was called My Family's Slave, and it was about... It was published posthumously for the journalist and... It was about a woman named Eudosha, who was quote-unquote gifted to the author's mother as a servant, but essentially what she really was was a slave to this family, uh, This and the family ended up immigrating from the Philippines to the U.S., and they would hide Eudosha, and... She was sort of, and she continued to be held here as a slave and stayed with the family for 56 years, but was also integral, right, to raising the author, to raising Alex Dizon and his siblings, and um, and was just very ingrained in their family structure. So I read this. It, it came out in 2017, and it's... It's a really jarring piece. That's sort of what I'm wondering if that's what's... I'm not saying that's what is happening here with Ario Hota, but it's, again, just something that I had in the back of my mind and that came to me and I remembered as I'm trying to understand what Ario Hota's position is with the Martells. No, this is a really... This is a way to contextualize that. I think says it better than we did. It was, uh, I want to say it was Alex Tizan's entire story, basically. And it was, I remember it now because I think I sent it to like everyone in my family. But that's a really good way to contextualize it. It really absolutely is because, I mean, the truth of the matter is like, you or I will not go through slavery. We won't experience this um, and we won't experience I mean, we won't experience what Ario Hotel's experience. We're also not going to wield a six-foot-long axe anytime soon, though I'm fingers crossed about it. And I don't know. I mean, that that's something that I think is the 
bummer. Like, Hota seems to be this blank passage, right? Like, George puts some thoughts and memories into him, but I want to know that. I want to know how he feels. And it does make me think, as we're about to talk about, that he won't go past a couple chapters in The Winds of Winter, and I don't know that we'll ever get his feelings on this in full. I hope we do. Yeah, I I don't actually... No, and I think that's something that people kind of wonder. How? Why is Arya Hota still in the Westeros? And it is a question to what extent he has any sort of choice and autonomy over his own life. And I think that's a question within the story right now. But at the moment, coming back to what's going on, Hota still remains strong. He's refusing Obara passage. And, you know, we didn't speak much of... We didn't speak much of this person in the previous chapter with Ares, the Kingsguard, but I do think another thing to bring into this discussion of Ario and Ares, besides uh, real-world things, is the context of Barristan Selmy. We'll come back to that throughout. Mm. You know, older, older... He too almost had his own little princess, you know? Yeah, exactly. Thinking about his youth, guarding people. While Doran interrupts all of this right now, literally everything you're saying, Doran is interrupting it, he relents. He says, let her pass about Obara to Eriohota, and they move to attend the prince. Eriohota reflects on the maester, who had been in Dorne even longer than Hota had. He'd even attended the unnamed princess, Doran's mother. He's nimble for an older man, the maester, and he has a bald, round egghead, which I think is very important. Ario thinks that maester is no match for the sand snakes. You know, this is, again, another time that Ario is thinking about the Sand Snakes versus people, and he thinks he's a match for them. Uh, just previously in that last little bit of time, he thinks, oh, I don't want to see Obara's blood on this marble, and it really does make me worry, especially with some of the places that they're going that have some really beautiful marble, I'm sure. It's going to be his blood. I'm pretty sure. Like, the snakes are going to mm. burn themselves down in the end, but Hota? I'm sorry, Obara's killing you, dude. Yeah, I, th- I think it might be that or all of them at once, right? He can take maybe one. How's he going to get to King's Landing, though? I don't know. They might all come back. I mean, or at least more than one of them. Tyene and Nim are in King's Landing. Sorella's not going to kill Hota. And he's going off on a mission with Obara. Yeah. I, I just don't think he dies so quickly, but... Um, in- I give him two. Two chapters. I think Matt Matt feels the same way, and to speak of that, you know, Matt, uh, a.k.a. Joe Magician, uh, recently did a Quarren stream, as he's been calling them, with Alicia Kingston, uh, also known as AK, and who's also a, a Lord Commander, right? And everyone should check out that stream, we're going to refer to it a, quite a bit throughout this chapter, but it points out, you know, the usefulness of having Aryo as the POV for all this is... It helps us establish pretty much how worthy the Sand Snakes are as warriors, uh, using him as a metric. Yeah, big, burly, six-foot axe, muscled. I, if he thinks that the Sand Snakes are warriors, if this big man thinks it, then my god. Well, also this person who's like very sure yeah, of their uh, fighting ability. But right now we're going to get sad again. In the shade of the orange trees, the prince sat in his chair, with his gouty legs propped up before him and heavy bags beneath and heavy bags beneath his eyes. Though whether it was grief or gout that kept him sleepless, Hota could not say. This is me propped up on my couch daily. 
Doran greets Obara, asking if she remembers when she was a child in the Water Gardens. It wasn't too long ago since she was there, but she argues with him, and Obara says it was 20 years or so ago, a long time ago, a long time ago now. And this stuck out to me because Obara is here asking for vengeance from Doran, right? Like saying, like, you let me go take the spears and let's do it. And Obara calls 20 years ago a long time ago. Doran says, it's not so long ago. This is some really subtle shading. Obara is stuck in this moment of revenge, but for Doran, he's been living in this hell for 20 years. Obara says 20 years ago is a long time, but for Doran, that's that's just part of when it started, right? Like, that's when he lost Elia and the babes and Lewin. Um, it... it 20 years ago, for Doran, he blinks and he thinks of it. But for Obara, she's saying that was a long time ago, and yet here she is asking for vengeance. Girl's barking up the wrong tree. She should have taken the 20 years ago and, like, ran with that and been like, what about your sister? I don't know. I just thought that was interesting how it was worded, that Obara's like, oh, 20 years ago is so long ago, old man. And it's like, Obara, that's what you're fighting for, is 20 years ago. Yeah, Torn's like, I've been thinking about this, like, every day for 20 years. For 20 years. years. Yeah. And I, I, yeah. there's another thing that Obara said that I did think was interesting. We're not going to probably deep dig into it that much, but because this is not Obara episode, <laughs> where Obara was like, actually, I didn't spend that much time in the Water Gardens. You might not remember, but I came a lot later because I was significantly more lowborn. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, anyway... She once more demands that Doran take action about his brother's murder, but Doran says that it was an agreed-upon trial by combat and hardly murder, and I'm like, you know, Doran's got a point. It's technically not. I mean, Oberyn did go to the capital on a suicide mission, and, like, the first chance someone was like, here, sign this to say we have no responsibility if you die against this huge, monstrous man. Oberyn was like, oh, a waiver? Of course. <laughs> we have another line here of even the weight of a coverlet could make him shudder though he bore the pain without complaint silence is a prince's friend the captain had heard him tell his daughter once words are like arrows Ariadne. once loosed you cannot call them back ah uh, it's not Ariane chapter time but it basically is yeah. and if that line ain't foreshadowing like Remember when Ariane is in the sand soon with her hands over her face going, oh no, everything's awful. Like, that's all of the Dorn plot, obviously. But that line, once loosed, you can't call him back, Ariane. Yeah. Mm. She need only send back a word, mm. right? Dragon or war? Dragon or war. It also makes- House Tolan sigil. <clears throat> I digress. Also makes me think of uh, another choice of words at the end of this book, or closer to the end, right? The Choose between sword- or the noose for Brienne. And, you know, I mean, this is really a phrase that covers a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Like, look at Sansa in the first book mm-hmm. uh, when they wrote the letter for her. Look at uh, the letter for Lord between Jamie, you know, with him hanging out with Bolton and being like, ah, yes, you know, make sure you give Rob Stark my regards. Uh, words are like arrows. Once you lose them, you cannot call them back. Doran goes on to say he sent a letter to Tywin, which Obara's not even underwhelmed at, right? Like, she's so low on the ground. She's like, okay. She calls him half the man that her father was, and 
Doran says, I know what you want. You want me to go to war. And Obara's like, I'm willing to do it myself. I'll take the army in the bone way and in the prince's pass. Nymeria will take half and we'll sack it all. Old town, blood, money. That's a sufficient start. Yeah. The prince pleads with her to look at the children in the garden and think of what starting a war could mean. And he describes his relationship with Oberyn a little bit to all of us. He says when they were children, Oberyn could topple any man bigger than he was. And Oberyn reminded Doran of that when he left for King's Landing. Hmm. You know, we haven't done this yet during this reread, but... The fight between Oberyn and Gregory, it does recall the story of David and Goliath from the Bible where, you know, David at the time was a young, small boy and Goliath was a Philistine giant, very big, very strong, and David slays him when others could not and ended up dying with a stone from his sling. And I think that, you know, this is like a big... This is kind of like in the cultural other, right? And people were kind of thinking of that. They're like, yeah, Oberyn versus the mountain. You know, it really leans into that that archetype of a fight of the underdog. People fucking love underdog stories and made us think like, wow, yeah, Oberyn's going to do it. He's going to win. He's doing it. He's doing it. And, it. and I think Doran himself was also very much seduced into the story, seduced into the idea of rooting for the underdog. But then Oberyn's own desire for vengeance himself, for Gregor to admit his own sin, is kind of what led to him slipping and dying and kind of threw everything apart. So. Yeah, and even here, I mean, the rock did get thrown, the poisonous rock. True, true, right? true. Like, that did happen, to be fair. It's just, you know, the effects took a while. <laughs> yeah, I, it, Oberyn was like, I've got a plan B. But plan A would be pretty fucking rad. You might kill me, but I'm not going down without you going down. Yeah. Doran wishes that he could comfort Obara, but she interrupts to give her own story. I did not come to you for comfort. Her voice was full of scorn. The day my father came to claim me, my mother did not wish for me to go. She is a girl, she said, and I do not think that she is yours. I had a thousand other men. He tossed his spear at my feet and gave my mother the back of his hand across the face so she began to weep. Girl or boy, we fight our battles, he said, but the gods let us choose our weapons. He pointed to the spear, then to my mother's tears, and I picked up the spear. I told you she was mine, my father said, and took me. My mother drank herself to death within the year. They say she was weeping as she died. Obara edged closer to the prince in his chair. Let me use the spear. I ask no more. Hmm. Yeah. What a great role model. Father figure. Positive female energy, you know, for Obara's mom. And Oberyn. I... <laughs> Yeah, it's not uh, flattering. Listen, we might lose every listener we have for what I'm about to say. Oprah's fine, I guess. It's, he's a smarmy, fun character and all that, but I don't know. He's not great. He's a supportive father to, uh, I guess, the the daughters that he has when when they are already with him after stealing them mm -hmm. from their mothers. But 
And, and I think that's significant. Yeah, I mean, like, Ilaria and him have a great yeah. vibe and relationship, and those younger Sand Snakes are definitely, uh, seem to have had a more stable upbringing, but... I don't know, something about going around and smacking around one of your five baby mamas in front of your kid. Uh, I'm a bastard, so I'm allowed to comment on this culturally because I am, I have no blood relationships. Like, I am a bastard with one person I'm related to in my life. Like, blood-related, one person. My mom. She's adopted. I don't know anyone, right? Like, this is the only culture I know is hashtag bastard life. But, like, I just, I don't know. It doesn't feel great. Yeah. George must have had a dad. i'm just saying george had a dad yeah and there's that and like for him to just tear her from her mother right it's interesting it's definitely interesting yeah so dorn says he'll sleep on it and send word to her then at sunspear which obara chides she's like you've slept for too long already and then she storms off to the stables in the hope of words of war. And the maester asks if Doran needs a draft for the pain. Doran declines and faces the next question. Is it safe to send the snakes, Obara particularly, back to Sunspear? And then Doran <laughs> reveals to Maester Calliot that he actually intends to go to Sunspear also, asking him to write to Ariane and say as much. Ariel is excited because Ariane is his little princess. As we mentioned, obvious Ario and Ares parallels here. And it's interesting as we ap- that as we approach Ares throughout the next while in Ario's chapters, Ario has no fondness for him, right? Uh, and there's something here about Ariane as Ario's princess because Ariane is very much so standing in for Malario, it seems, right? Not just for Ario, for Doran in a few ways, too. I mean, Ariane is a woman grown. She's 22-ish, somewhere in that range. And he's definitely protected her her whole life. And like Marcella to Ares, Ariane is the only daughter that he would ever have, right? That Ario would ever have. But Ariane has some of her father's traits, and she obviously has a few traits that are not from Doran that we can guess are Malaria or just herself. And it makes me think Erio is doing all he can to protect Ariane, and it's kind of a projection because he couldn't protect Malario and couldn't protect Malario's marriage, and he lost Malario and lost that dynamic. It also reminds me in a way of Jamie Lannister, like how, how he couldn't protect Rayella and how he sees Sansa as his last chance for honor. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really interesting connection between Ario and uh, these two other Kingsguard members. I'm going to throw in one more. You know, you're talking about some of this, the dynamic that they have. And I think there's also, to an extent, right, some parallels between how Barristan feels about protecting Daenerys. As her king, mm. as her queen's guard. Sorry, sorry. The name of his chapter is the Queen's Guard. Okay. Yeah, and I think there's a similarity in that Ari's Ario, and Barristan are all a sort of King's Guard or Queen's Guard or Prince in parentheses. So princess, Prince Guard, plopped into a different culture, or land, and how we get to experience all that through their eyes and. Interestingly, our very first two chapters for Dorne are outsiders, right? It's both Ario and Ares. And in 
But in both Ares and Barrison, we, I think, get a lot of judgment from the people whose cities and, and cultures and places uh, they're in at that point. There's a lot of judgment of their customs, of their cultures. There's kind of like a sense of they feel like the people around them are maybe dirty or uncivilized or very scary. They're in harsh conditions. They feel like everyone wants to kill them. And they also have these moments where they adjust their clothing to meet these new climates. I, I think it's interesting that Aryo ends up keeping his copper armor, which is probably really difficult and hot, as Alicia and Matt point out. They go into a deeper discussion about what this armor might mean, and we're not going to talk about that here because we're not, but also as an incentive for you to, to go check out their stream and listen to what they have <laughs> to say. But Aryo's chapters, I think, are framed quite differently from Ari's and Barristan's. It's the very first that we're seeing of Dorne, and George seems to be using the technique of like kind of having an outsider coming in to help the audience become more accustomed to this new place. You see it a lot in like I don't know every a lot of fucking stories, right? Like the newbie brought into an organization or a new order that they never knew anything about, secret order, learning all the things, same as you, the audience. Learning about the world along with the character. Um, and Ario's chapters have a lot of that introduction. But Ario, as opposed to Ari's and Barrison, has actually been in Dorne for quite a while and has assimilated in some ways and doesn't really, I think, pass judgment on the people there, right? He doesn't feel like an outsider because he's Nervoshi, even though he misses home. He feels like an outsider to the reader because... Uh, he doesn't have very many friends because he was originally brought here as a slave bodyguard, though he might he's in this weird ambiguous place and we don't know if he is still or not. And he may not necessarily he doesn't feel like an outsider himself by now. Like even Ariane regards him with a lot of fondness. Yeah, and I think there's definitely something in the Barristan idea, uh, especially Barristan ruling in Marine and at, at that Queen's Guard chapter, of course. There's definitely something there, even in the way that Daenerys's naivety, uh, how she kind of rejects some of the information he tries to give mm. her about Aerys, right? And Ariane has that same naivety as we see. Uh, you know, Ario feels nothing but, I'm sorry, princess. Like, this is how it goes after he has to, you know, kill her boyfriend. And... <laughs> Uh, he wanted to I die. I think there's something in that. Yeah, absolutely. And also, like, good for Erio. Let him have some fun, I guess, once in a while. Erio uh, <laughs> can have some murder as a treat. No. I just, I'm sad for Ares, I suppose. But definitely something in the naivety of the princesses that they guard. Uh, look at Ares and Marcella. Yeah. So, Maester Kaleo warns Doran people will see the shape he's in if he comes in public to... Sunspear, which, not great, right? Like, things aren't going great, especially not for a ruler. Two years ago, Doran could walk around with a cane, and now he's lucky to get around in his chair. Ario even worries and thinks that he would have to fly to sit on top of the Tower of the Sun. I mean, the stairs are so long, the old palace, the shadow city's full of eyes. And Doran argues, he says, I have to be seen by my people. The maester warns he'll also need to spend time with Princess Marcella and her white knight Ares, who is, of course, writing letters back to King's Landing. Ario lingers on the white knight, who accompanied his princess to Dorne, much like Ario did with Melario years ago, but Ario doesn't think they have much else in common. Ares serves the Iron Throne, and Ario senses that one day they'll fight. 
He slides his hands up and down his waifu, the axe, thinking that day might come sooner than he expected. Literally, in a few chapters. We never know. You never know, but apparently Ario did. And I'm just like, how did he know? How could he feel it? How could he just feel? Can you just sometimes feel like, yeah, I'm going to fight that person? Like, there's something that in the language I think was kind of fun here. Because at first you're like, oh, Ario's sad thinking about Ari's. And you're like, is he? Is it Envy? He's kind of like jealous of like Ari's life. And then he's like, no, I'm sad because I'm going to kill him one day. <laughs> it is like at first it fakes you out you're like oh like you expect him to say I feel sad because I can relate and I have empathy because I've done the same thing and coming here with a princess to a foreign land and it's just like nope just gonna kill him I feel kind of sad for Ariane I guess ish or Marcella or something could he, I don't know he doesn't feel sad he says could you see it like in Ari's eyes was he like that boy has a death wish <laughs> I mean yeah that 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 boy is an idiot. So I mean, you look at him and his stupid big puppy dog eyes because he's literally, Aries is literally the human golden retriever of the Doran story. <laughs> Mr. Peanut right? Butter. Like, Actually, I never, I didn't get that far. In, I I don't know, season two or three. Then it made me like really sad. Well, maybe pick another dog like Marley and me because that dog dies too. Spoilers, wow. But <laughs> I don't know if Mr. Peanut Butter dies or not. It was just like a depressing fucking show. I know people love it. Prince Doran calls out for the captain, who is, again, not feeling very empathetic, and Ario comes to take him away in his chair. Doran asks if Ario had siblings in Norvos, and Ario tells him that he had two brothers, three sisters. He was the youngest. He thinks he was the youngest and unwanted, that he was a mouth to feed, a big boy who ate a lot, outgrew his clothes, and, of course, they had sold him to the bearded priests. So his family sold him to the beardest priests. Uh, Doran tells him that he was the oldest, and yet now he's the last. Actually, that's really fucking sad, too. We don't get a perspective from Ario on these lines, but there is something, I think, to be said here of class and status, of how Ario was unwanted and therefore sold as a slave, whereas Oberyn was the youngest, also of House Martell, and he was free to go wherever the fuck he wanted, right? He had that afforded to him, and he's he mm-hmm. was so beloved, right? And now he has this whole kingdom of Westeros that wants to go to war for his memory, so... Aryu has yeah, no feelings like, on this. Like, what do they apparently. tout? Like, their ancestors landed here and got lucky after some, like, work they put in, and it's them that are the, the guys that are leading these big, amazing... You know, like, it's a weird thing of, like... It goes right back to what you know that I get in many arguments about with Stannis in John's arc of why is Stannis more important than one free folk? Yeah. Why? Yeah. And you know, I mean, I think it's a question and less an equality. And especially when you look at Ario, you know, who doesn't have anywhere to go. It's more than that. I mean, Oberyn could go anywhere. His memory is bringing war and Ario Hota is just a servant and, a soldier of this war and of this message and Ario has nowhere else to go. He'll just be in this war one way or another. Yeah. He'll live, die and serve for this family. We could have had like a moment of opinion in there, but I guess, I don't know, for some reason it wasn't written in. Anyway, the Prince Doran tells him that Elia wasn't meant to live actually. And Oberyn ended up being a surprise. Wow. Talk about being like, you were, Oberyn was unplanned. (laughs) Um, as you were in life, Oberyn, as you were in life. Then Doran says, yet here I sit, 
And they are gone. Wow, that's sad. Yep. Yep, yep. All the sad stuff today. And Ariel Hota does not know how to respond to his prince, which makes sense because, you know, he's never been allowed to explore these feelings until this chapter. He thinks about his basic principles. Serve, obey, protect. Simple vows for simple men, the bearded priests had told him. A rotten orange breaks this silence. Doran winces as if it hurts him, and he asks to be left alone for just a while longer. Doran sits for a few hours, even past the children going in for dinner. He eats a bit of the tapas that are brought to him, and he drinks the strong wine he loves so much served with them, which, same to both of those, that sounds delicious. And, God, poor Ario, like, again, hearkening right back to what you just said, simple vows for simple men. That's what the priests would say to him. That's the same problem with the King's Guard and the Night's Watch. And these aren't simple men and these aren't simple vows. You can say they're three simple words, but they're not. What happens when your simple men grow sentient? It's not just guarding the royal family as all of these people that we've been talking about learn mostly to their dismay. Uh, we're humans. We, we can't just turn off your emotions. And being a soldier, like you talked about with Arya earlier, it doesn't remove your identity, something we explore with Arya throughout this series in excess. And I'd argue that the POVs of all of the point of view chapters, not counting prologues and epilogues, Ario is the least emotionally developed. Uh, even Melisandre, I feel like we finally get some sort of direction on her character to understand like, ah, yes, kind of a crazy bitch still, but like, She's been through some shit and she's on a mission. Like something is happening with Smelisandra chick that we didn't understand before. Uh, where Ario, we have to make a lot of guesses about these internal yeah. feelings. And even so, pieces and bits of his life are kind of bleeding through his role in this chapter. And I think that's really important to take, that we're getting some of these memories paired with his serving and obeying and protecting. We might not be getting the internal feelings or insight, but we're at least getting these memories, which means he's thinking of them. Yeah, and hopefully uh, we do get more in a perspective. And, and I, I do wonder, you know, is that a shortcoming, right, of the way that Ario is written? Because then he feels, because he, he, we don't really get his him as fleshed out. Is that why people are like, yeah, he's going to die in Winds of Winter, which, you know, he might. But, like, is that a fault, then, in the writing of him? I think so. I do. Um, yeah. I, I do think... That's a fault in the storytelling leading up to what his climactic moments of his POV will be. Uh, and that's why I'm like, two chapters, I think we can get at least a little more out of him. I just don't think we can see him through past the middle of the book. I think that's asking a lot, personally. Maybe, like, one in the beginning of the book, one in the second half of the book, and then dead. But, like, I just don't know if that book has room for him, but I do think it's a flaw in the writing. And I think that George... When he split up all of Dorne and learned, oh, well, I guess I have to give a POV chapter to 800 people now to explain this whole entire new plot after all, and I can't just leave it with one person in Ariane, in an Oberyn and Storm, uh, learning like from Ariane as the POV is not enough. Then came Quentin. Then came Ario. I don't know. That, that might not be logistically true, you know, but it, it's just like it feels like he didn't think... Like, it was more like, here's part of the story, Ariel Hota, that I need you to tell. Yeah, and, and that's but where's Ariel Hota's story? Concern, you know, like, how much are we projecting, right? And I, I don't know if this is going to 
happen or if I would like it or not per se. I Matt and Alicia Matt and Alicia brought up a really good point that Ario hasn't had a moment yet, right, where he wrestles. He has that human heart in conflict with itself moment. I think, you know, that moment could be coming. But that moment could be coming and it could be with a spear. But like I, I that's the thing, like is it going to come, or is it just going to be the spear without that moment? Right? Like, does George right. is George going to flesh out? I think out he Ari- has to build Ari- it up. Enough. I think because I think the like the crux of all of this that we're learning. If there's one thing that Ario cares about in this world, it's Doran and Ariane. Right? Like yeah. that's what he has. He takes care of the prince. He loves his little princess. He has grown to love this family. Whether it's a little Stockholmy that he loves his family. I mean, they they seem to be nice-ish people, you know, ish, give or take, depending on the person. So I don't know. I don't know. It's neither here nor there. But whether or not, he has come to love Doran. And I do think, I know poor Quentin theorized that he would at least get back and see Doran before he died, right? Uh, but I don't know. I don't know if that's something that'll happen. I think that Obara's definitely going to be involved in his death, likely Darkstar. Um, that is where his plot seems to be heading. So, I don't know. I, I'd imagine that trying to stop Obara from doing something that Doran wouldn't approve of, or doing something against what Doran wanted, could be part of that conflict. And defending Doran's whole shtick would be Ario's thing. But it does bum me out that it's in service of that. I think if anything, it would be in regards to Doran and Arian. But it seems like he's already made that choice once before and chose Doran. Yeah. But I mean, there are some other seeds in here that we can dig into as to if that could be the crux of it. Right now, though, we, we are in those deep, dark hours, the late, late night. Ario finds Doran asleep in his chair and then finally wheels mm-hmm. him over to his bed. Ario's chamber is joined to Doran's he sits on his bed, honing his sword, like the priest had taught him. The day that they branded him, they told him he must keep his long axe sharp, and so he did. He thinks of Norvos, high on the hill, yet low beside the river. He thinks of the three bells, shaking his bones, and Nara and Niel's strong voice and laughter. So this is an interesting passage, how it's written. The three bells in Norvos that ring are named Nara, Noom, and Niel. But something about this passage combines kind of with what he told Doran about his family. He had two brothers and three sisters. There are three bells. I think his sisters were actually named for the bells because he says, and Nara and Niel's strong voice and laughter, uh, which sounded separate from the bells and just the structure and the way George said it. And it also reminds me of Samwell Four in this book when Eamon is talking about his family and talking about death and how he says, yet I cannot help but wonder what will follow when the last warmth leaves my body. Will I feast forever in the father's golden hall as a septon say? Will I talk with egg again, find Darren whole and happy, hear my sisters singing to their children? So it reminded me a bit of that passage, and I thought it was an interesting look uh, into if his sisters are named for the three bells. Nara Hmm. is a Nigerian name, which means God owns me, and Niel doesn't actually have a common meaning, but it is Arabic and Spanish in its origin from what I've seen. Hmm. Just a little tidbits. I don't know. I thought that was such an interesting connection, just the way that George structured the paragraph made it seem like 
his siblings may have been named after the three bells of Norvos. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I think it'd be that would be some at least something right about his history, world building, and mm-hmm. tell us about his his family, right? If they're named after the bells, well, we do get a little bit more of that history too because he talks about, uh, for example. He remembers his branding and its awful yeah. memory, but then he remembers instead of the burnt hair from his branding, he remembers his mother wearing a special dress with a squirrel fur collar that she only wore for special occasions, like when they would go see the bear fights on the sinner's steps. And it's not just that, that he remembers, he remembers food like winter cake with ginger, pine nuts, cherry, washed down with NASA, fermented goat milk and honey, which sounds Really okay right now. I'd be into all this. Yeah. Uh, but he remembers these memories and he's, again, it's sensory, like what you were saying. This is very sensory. He's remembering the food. He's remembering the textures and it goes from memory to memory. He remembers his branding and the hair burning, but then he remembers burnt hair and he thinks of squirrel fur. Um, so it's like his culture is kind of blending into this life that he has for himself. Yeah, that's a great point. And. So I know not everything is brainy, right? But there is some Brienne and Jamie feels going on, right? Bear fighting on the sinner's steps. It feels significant he'd watch bear fights on the sinner's step with his family. Uh, and bear baiting was really significantly popular from the 12th through 19th century. It's not as popular now, of course, but we'll talk about that because there are people that have practiced it like in the last decade. Henry VIII of fucking horse was super into it. It was like his whole thing. Of course it was. And Elizabeth uh, I liked it as well. She actually overruled it being banned by Parliament on Sundays. They were trying to ban it for religious reasons. And she's like, oh, no, I like my bears to fight. And it is definitely still an occurrence. Like, you might not hear about it, but in Pakistan... Uh, as of 2004, in South Carolina, as recent as 2010 to 2013, it's banned in 18 of the 28 states that allow bear hunting. Bear baiting and bear fighting persists in Alaska, Idaho, Maine, Michigan, Minnesota, New Hampshire, Utah, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. In Wisconsin in 2002, hunters killed 2,400-something bears. Oh. And, yeah, uh... They they uh, take what? the animals and all, but sometimes they do bear baiting and they have them fight, especially like bulldogs. Wait, they fight the bulldogs? Yeah, apparently they use the bulldogs to bait them into like dancing and fighting. Huh. I've told you about mm-hmm. why bulldogs are called bulldogs and have squishy faces before, right? Have I addressed that yet on mm-hmm. this podcast? I don't think you have. This is just a fact that I know off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> Bulldogs have those squishy faces, uh, and they're called bulldogs because they actually, kind of like with bear baiting, were used for uh, wrangling bulls as well, right? Especially like the bullfights and the squishy faces. That their faces are like that because it's easier to sustain like impact or something like that. So, and I think that they would grab maybe the bulls by like the nose. I'm not sure, but anyway, bulldogs actually had to do had to relation with bulls. So, hmm. I did not know that, actually. I found facts about dachshunds, too. Okay, well, I'll be sure to keep you on my list for when I do a podcast about dogs. I will call you up. Yeah, that one's actually more wholesome, the dachshund one. But right now, facts about Arya Hota. Once his axe is sharpened (laughs) enough, 
He lays it down. Undressing for bed, he thinks he should have picked up the fallen oranges and sleeps dreaming of them. And there's sticky red juices all over his fingers. And to be honest, I highly empathize with the regret of not eating the oranges or not eating things in general in a very literal sense. He was regretting not picking them up, like off the ground. But I thought he was going to eat them too. I mean, they're all rotten, Eliana. Only part of it, probably, you know? Okay, not the whole onion is rotten, contrary to some people's opinions. <laughs> so I cooked with the other half. dream is pretty strong, Eliana. Let's backtrack on your eating rotten oranges for a second. Sticky red juices coating his fingers. Hmm. Like blood? I think you're you, right. Is it a metaphor? It is a metaphor. Blood? It is. It is. Hmm. Hmm. Turns out the oranges are a metaphor. Well, morning comes really quickly. Hota assembles the guard. Thirty swords stay behind to protect the children at the water gardens. Hmm. Twenty come as the prince's guard. Hota dresses in his copper and iron armor, but he laces fabric in and out of the metals so he doesn't actually burn himself with the sun. He uses his gold silks. Doran procrastinates. Some of that is due to gout and pain. Some is due to his nature, of course. He eats, which sounds great, ham, fiery peppers, gull egg, and he says goodbye to some of his favorite children from the water gardens. I know we don't detail depression in Westeros, right? Like, uh, we talk about Ilan Payne's room. Ilan Payne's room is very quite obviously, like, either a 13-year-old boy who plays too much Xbox and pees into water bottles, or... Or it's a depressed man who has had a job as a killing machine and has literally not been able to talk for most of his life now. Um, So we see that. It's a pretty good depiction of seeing, you know, that depression. But I feel like no one talks about with Doran, like, not only is he completely traumatized, he's depressed. He's so depressed. Everyone just keeps dying. And he's disabled. When your joints are swollen and hurt and they're physically big, I can tell you that when you wake up, you want to cry and you want to go back to sleep again. And after that, you have to slowly coax yourself out of bed and lie to yourself that you're going to be rewarded if you get yourself out of bed. And then you have to go live this life that you, predefined, already have to live. So like in my case, it's waking up for a company that doesn't have its shit together, being a girlfriend, caretaking for my cats if I can, trying to make it so my partner doesn't have to use his energy on me that he is stored up for himself. In Doran's case, it's, oh, ruling a nation, being a father and an uncle to some murderous girls, a leader. Uh, Some days you just want to stay still for six hours and cry, which is what Doran did under the orange trees when he learned Oberyn died. Yeah, and for that, everyone called him weak, and he wasn't. He's carrying so much. Yeah. Mm. They keep just insulting him. Sorry, you're going to die, Doran. What? Yeah. We all do. That's true. That's true. The oranges. That's us. The rotten oranges plopping down slowly. Um, Band name. I'd rather be a cool, sticky, sweet blood orange than, I don't know. To be fair, the rotten oranges is like, what, the moldy peaches? Is this a Westerosi moldy peaches cover band? I haven't listened to the moldy peaches in a long ass time. Um, 
What also takes a long ass time is them taking off. They don't leave until midday. Lady Nim catches up with them on their way there. She asks to accompany them to Sunspear, and Dorn says he'd appreciate the company to take his mind off of his joint pain on the road, and Nim brings up her true purpose. Vengeance for Oberyn, Elia, and her children. And Doran answers her with a Lannister always pays his debts, and that he knows what she wants. Obara would have him go to war. But Nymeria says no, no, no. Obara would settle for Old Town, even though she hates it as much as their little sister loves it. Ah, their little sister? You mean Sorella? Ella? Ella? A? <laughs> a? A? Under my Sorella? <sighs> So Just kidding, it's Alaris. It doesn't work when you say Alaris. It doesn't. I do love what a subtle, like, obviously, we know. We all already know that Sorella, Alaris, like, we, we know. It's a reread podcast. But I did not notice that line before. I, I totally forget that she's the younger sister of all of them and uh, that Obara hates it as much as Sorella loves it. It's like, this chapter should have told you who Sorella was. I get it. It's only two chapters later. I get it. I get it. I get it now. I get it. Good job, George. Good job. Yeah, it is actually, you're right, two chapters later, and that's structured intentionally, so you can maybe start piecing that together. Anyways, Nymeria explains that she was a bed with the Fowler twins when news of Oberyn hit her, and just like that, and that just like House Fowler's words, she asks that Doran let her soar. And that she only needs one sweet sister to do so, Tyene. Tyene, who is sweet, gentle, and would help Nim claim the four lives that she plans to take. The Lannister twins, so that's two, Cersei and Jaime. The old lion, Tywin. And then the little king, Tommen. Ah, uh, yes, uh, the uh, 298 AC's called. They Bad news about that Tywin. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So my favorite thing about this, and I think George is doing this on purpose right here, like I didn't think about it until now, she literally within the same paragraph is like, well, I was fucking the blonde Fowler twins, Uncle Doran, you see, you know, we were playing in bed, me and these two blonde twins, Jenna Lynn and Jenna Line or whatever their damn names are, and uh, also we should kill the twins that are blonde. Yeah, it, it, that is interesting. Isn't that not a cool line? Like, it, there's definitely something there that she was a bad with blonde twins, and then it goes into blonde twins that they should kill. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, there's I don't, something there. I, I feel like he planned it. Yeah, that he's playing with. Yeah. And more than that, there's something else there. So something that I'm working on in my essay that will never come out about King's Landing someday, and <laughs> uh, is some of the stuff with Cersei. Uh, Nymeria is going to the council right now. When we get to Cersei someday, it's going to be freaking lit, my friends, because there's so much to connect. I'm so excited. Nymeria is going uh, after this to King's Landing to sit on the small council and take the Dornish seat that was offered to them from Tywin, right? And like that's part of Dorne's whole little, like, okay, if you guys would just shut up and wait, I have some plans. Doesn't mean they're good plans or that they're going to work. But she's going to go there, and we've already seen... Kind of what Cersei does with exotic women in her court, right? That are, well, I mean, look at this right here. Nymeria is very much so kind of manipulating Doran and kind of talking sweet. I mean, each one has their way. We know Obara is brusque. She is not 
going to be sweet and smart about confronting Doran about this? And he said, no. Now, Maria's here, and she is a little... She's a little flashy, right? She's a little bit of an exhibitionist, but she knows how to try to ingratiate herself with Dorn and say, oh, uncle, oh, uncle, it's so great to see you. How can I help you with things? And, oh, we're going to do this, uncle. And Tyene's approach is much softer, but Nemeria will be a smooth talker. She's going to get to King's Landing, and I have a strong feeling that she might do some seduction of Cersei, whether it's actual uh, fleshy, seduction right like whether it's like swampy i don't know if it's going to be swampy per se but she's at least going to manipulate and be able to schmooze cersei to her way right and i feel like this maybe this is almost foreshadowing for that maybe nemeria a bed with a blonde twin might be nemeria a bed with cersei you never know yeah i think that's a that's a very good point. And I mean, like, they both have types, you know, as you said, Circe seems to be into uh, non-Mesterosi women, which, you know, I guess that's a, that's a type someone can have. Um, and <laughs> Lady Nim, also into blondes, both of them. Very, <laughs> uh, they got types, I guess. Blonde twins, nonetheless. Yes. Well, Doran doesn't really agree with this assessment, though, right? Like, these people that she wants to kill. Doran's like, mm, I don't really think that's fair. The little king, Tommen, isn't guilty of anything. And Nymeria, she's no longer playful and flirty with Uncle Doran. She's like, only royal blood can wash out my father's murder. Like, we will be killing these motherfuckers, Uncle Doran. There's quite a bit of irony, though, then, throughout this chapter, because, first of all, none of them have royal blood. Yeah. Pointing that out there. In theory, kind of, yes and no, in that they're in power right now. But also, as you were saying, right... Yeah, we're all going to war <laughs> to claim Tywin's dead to claim Tywin's head. Wow, Freudian slip, and I like fucking ruined the joke. Um, because that yes, Tywin's dead, and Cersei learns it in the very next chapter. Everyone's behind, except for Tyrion. Yeah, it's like and Jamie. It, it's very ironic. Like, yeah, it, it is kind of silly, right? Because Dorne is—they're always late. They're always late on the uphaul, and here it is. Like, this is... Y'all are late on that one, too. You can't kill Tywin because you're late. It's over. Already dead. Yeah. Doran pushes back at her again about all this, right? Because he says, Oberyn chose to be in a trial by combat in front of all of Westeros. And Nymeria's like, mm, no. And she says, call it what you will. We sent them the finest man in Dorn, and they are sending back a bag of bones. True. I'm gonna just leave the slot here. Ned? Ned's bones. But also, a bag of bones. Hosea. Hmm. You know, it's interesting you say Hosea. There are some uh, really strong kind of hostage parallels here, right? With the children at the water garden and yeah. Doran leaving the 30 guards to guard them. Just doesn't feel good, does it? What's going to happen to all these hostages in the Winds of Winter, Eliana? Probably something bad. You know, Doran's starting to go down a similar road as Tywin, it seems. And, yeah. And Jamie Lannister's like, let's take these child hostages, too. A lot of people taking child hostages right now. It's like this weird trend. I think uh, a lot of people seem to feel like Doran is some, you know, timid, 
he's the grass, Oberyn's the snake, as we know, but everyone feels like Doran is really timid, and Oberyn definitely pushed Doran when he was alive, and he went beyond anything Doran had actually asked of him. Like, Doran had said, go to King's Landing, learn about the new king, find allies, don't provoke the lions. And he wanted justice more than anything. Both of them did, but Oberyn could not wait any longer. Yeah. Nymeria says 17 years is a long time to wait, and if Doran had been the one who died, Oberyn would have waged war immediately on the capital. She tells her uncle her she and her sisters will not wait 17 years for their vengeance, and they ride off and she rides off on her horse, leaving him behind. Irio notices that Doran's in pain, but if he needed the maester, he would have called for himself. They ride until they see the slender spear tower, and then the mighty Tower of the Sun, which is just magnificent. I love the description. With its dome of gold and leaded glass, last the dun-colored sand ship, looking like some monstrous Dramond that had washed ashore and turned to stone. Oh, there's another stone reference. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I didn't notice that. That's really funny. And okay. turning to stone. Hmm. 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 Turning hmm. to stone? Hmm. Hmm. Interesting, interesting, hmm. interesting. The leagues of coast between Sunspear and the water gardens are small but very different worlds. Music, sunshine, and children were prominent in the citrus-filled gardens, but in Sunspear it smells of dust and sweat and smoke. Even the colors were different. Pink marble in the gardens, whereas the Shadow City is made of muddy brick. And it was no, in uh, to quote, great city... But also, as Ario thinks, it was the closest thing to a real city that Sunspear had. Nymeria beat them there by a few hours, alerting everyone to their coming, as the threefold gate was opened wide. The small folk shout out to the caravan as they arrive. The snakes had stirred the people. People are just shouting, To Spears! Vengeance for the Red Viper! War! War! To Spears! Yeah, one thing I wanted to put in here, I don't know if it's a true thing or not, but... The Threefold Gate. Interesting that he named it the Threefold Gate when he has his little threefold writing that he does, right? Where he puts something in, puts it in a little harder, and then the third time puts it in the hardest, and then the reveal, right? And I almost just wonder if something's going to happen with the Threefold Gate. I'm going to look it up later, but I just wonder if something might happen with this Threefold Gate. Yeah. Isn't it just a weird name to name something? I get it because it folds out three times, but... But as you said, the threefold... It, it is an interesting name. It is. I might just do some research on that and come back to you next episode. Well, in the meantime, they have lemons, limes, and oranges, but all of those fruits are being thrown from the crowd. Oh, at Doran's, uh, at Doran, at everyone, although <laughs> most near the front kind of fall back when they see Irio Hota at his giant axe, but the ones in the back, they keep throwing them. Uh, the porticolis closes behind them and drowns out the sounds of people's yells and screams, and Princess Arianne awaits her father with half the court. Manfrey Martel, young Maester Miles, Dornish knights in flowing silk, and of course, the Princess Marcella with her septa and her white knight. First of all, where do you think they got those lemons? I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Second of all, <laughs> second of all, we spoke about this in the Ares chapter, but the last time we saw Ares and Marcella in the books at all in this story, up until this moment in this chapter, was that Tyrion 9 chapter, right? In Clash, as they Fuck. boated away from the Riot of King's Landing. So when we see them again, 
Doran is actually being brought in during the makings of a riot. Wow, Marcella just like, riots just go with her wherever she goes, huh? She's a riot girl. She is. Punk rock. By good Charlotte, just kidding. I could see Marcella having a punk rock phase. Anyways, someone else going through their rebellious phase. Princess Ariane strode to the litter on snakeskin sandals laced up to her thighs. Her hair was a mane of jet black ringlets that fell to the small of her back, and around her brow was a band of copper suns. She is still a little thing, the captain thought. Where the sand snakes were tall, Ariane took after her mother, who stood but five foot two. Yet beneath the jeweled girdle and loose layers of flowing purple silk and yellow samite, she had a woman's body, lush and roundly curved. Father, she announced as the curtains opened, Sunspear rejoices at your return. Doran says that he heard the joy on his way in, and Ario helps him down. Ariane announces his favorite foods are to be made, although Doran doesn't really feel like he can do them justice. He asks where Tyene is, as she's not present with everyone else there to greet him. Ariane says she waits in the throne room for him, seeking his counsel in private. Ah, yes, the ghost of Christmas future. Hota takes him up the winding stairs to the throne room, where the light is cascading down through the glass dome, dappled, casting hundreds of colors about the room. There, Tyene stands from her seat in a gown of pale blue samite with mirish lace sleeves embroidering with her golden needles. Interesting. I want her hair outfit. honey blonde, her eyes deep blue. Doran still sees Oberyn and his viper eyes in them, in all of his children, in fact. Viper eyes. I don't know the rest of the words of the song, turns out, never mind. Uh, there were two seats on the dais, near twin to one another, save that one had the Martel spear inlaid in gold upon its back, whilst the other bore the blazing Voynich sun that had flown from the mass of Nymeria's ships when first they came to Dorne. The captain placed the prince beneath the spear and stepped away. I'm sure we've danced around this idea ah. today, but it's so it's so symbolic. This is where the Prince of Dorne should be, right? Propped under the Dornish spear and sun, ruling proudly, but Dorne is broken. Instead, our prince has been weeping quietly in the orange trees of the water gardens for innocence lost, and his princess, Melario, has gone into another castle to shut herself away from him. It, it, you get a lot of that trappings of power feel, right? Like thrones are just things and power resides where men think it resides, blah, blah, blah. But definitely innocence lost is what it feels like. This is this is what the kingdom should be. It should have this beautiful dappled rainbow light coming in from the dome and a lively court. And uh, it's not. Yeah, that's true. It, it's, a, it's a kingdom that's been in mourning for the past 17 years. Uh, hoping for action, enjoying their prince, who's now dead. Um, and by that I mean Oberyn. They're all, they all have prince and princess attached to their names. And as you said, there's an innocence lost vibe here. And I, I, I kind of feel that way about the entirety of A Feast for Crows, which is part of oh, why yeah. I love it so much. Like, running throughout it, you have this this feel of the fall and the Garden of Eden. and And I think... This chapter really conveys that very strongly. You have Doran, as you said, leaving the water garden, but in a way that's also the Garden of Eden, right? And with the children running through them as innocents and 
out into the wilderness, out into the deserts of Dorne. And then three times throughout this chapter, he's approached by snakes tempting him. So there's a lot of that. Mm, I think that's a perfect point. Didn't even think about the snake part. Duh. Really good. Tyene sweetly asks Doran if it hurts, and Doran asks her to be quick and get to her point. Hey, needles. <laughs> Which point? <laughs> because he already dealt with the brusque, rude sisters. She gives him her embroidery, which shows Oberyn on his steed, and passive-aggressively says to him, she made it for him to help him remember her father, as many think he's forgotten him. And Doran's like, yeah, I remember. She's like, do you remember her? Uh, Doran tells her the same tale. Tywin will give them the mountain's head for this atrocity. But Tyene, like her sisters, sings the song of war. And not just war. She explains to Doran that, you know, let me tell you. Let me tell you a little bit about Law, Doran. Marcella is the lawful heir, not Tommen. She's made to be queen, like her mother. And we have this line. When good King Darren wed Princess Miria and brought us into his kingdom, it was agreed that Dornish law would always rule in Dorne, and Marcella is in Dorne, as it happens. What a coincidence, Tyene. <laughs> Grudgingly, Dorne admits, okay, well, you got a point there, Tyene, and I'll think on it. But Tyene says all he does is think on things and that some men think because they're afraid to do. And those men become gym teachers. No, I'm just kidding. There's no school anymore. Things get heated and Hota bangs his axe on the ground, telling Tyene that she presumes too much of the prince. So this is a big moment that Hota interrupts, right? He comes out of camera mode uh, and she was quite physically close to him. She had her hand raised toward him, and she immediately falls to one knee, apologizing, asking her uncle if he will still love her, and saying her heart is broken to pieces and that she meant no ill will. She takes her leave. Maester Kaleot immediately checks Doran for holes, because they all think Tyene would have poisoned him, because that's what she does. Her whole thing is like tiny needles, lots of poison, stab, stab, stab. That's what you need to know about Tyene. That's what George just taught us. And... I don't... Look, we talked about this in R.E.N. This isn't an R.E.N. chapter, but it can be for a hot second. We don't know who told on R.E.N. on page. We've talked it to death, but if you've forgotten, here is where I stand and why I think it's important to call out here. Doran knew. He figured it out. And likely because of this exact moment. They're all worried about poison on Doran, but Tyene actually just told Doran their entire game plan, which is to crown Marcella. If you remember back in A Storm of Swords, Oberyn told this pretty much same speech to Tyrion about Marcella and crowning her. Arianne has literally been hanging out with Tyene nonstop. Like, this is all, you guys see this is connected, right? Like, you get it, right? Like, this has been the whole Oberyn wing of the family plan to get their vengeance, and Doran's the only one that hasn't been on board, so, like, here we are again. Yeah, you just have Doran, like, I don't know, you, you know, pinching that little bridge between the eyebrows, just like, oh my, God. <laughs> my fucking family, my daughter, and I I think there's a lot of merit to what you're saying, like, Doran's just like, oh my fucking God, and I mean, turns out, he figured it out, right, because he's a man who thinks, here, he was not afraid to do yeah yeah he is definitely a man who thinks here and 
Uh, Doran's gonna kind of think about this even further because they check him out. Things are dandy. No poison. He actually requests some milk of the poppy. He's like, can I just get a hit of that? And then he turns to Hota and he's like, all right, Ario, which of my guards are loyal? And Ario's like, they're all loyal, sir. If any of them betray you, I will bring you their heads. And Doran doesn't want heads. He says he wants obedience. He then commands Hota to quickly and quietly as possible take all of the sand snakes, all eight, even the younger, into custody before they further inflame the city. Barring Sorella, because she's not there, he says, leave her to her game. Of Thrones? Uh, of Thrones, oh my god. And that... That's his uh, goal. That's his command. That's what he wants Ario to go to. It is a hard job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah, and, and I think it's significant right here with the even the, the children. We end up getting a reprise of serve, obey, protect, simple vows for a simple man. And I'm going to say, if that motto, the serve, obey, protect, sounds familiar to you at all, outside the context of A Song of Ice and Fire, that's because it is. The motto of the LAPD is to protect and to serve and has become adopted by other police forces since then. A couple of them were like, I like that idea. But you know what is not a great idea? What's not great? The LAPD also has, as many police forces do, a history of police brutality. And it's an issue that has actually served as a flashpoint for many protests and riots. One of the most famous, of course, being... Uh, the one that follows the beating and use of excessive force against Rodney King, a black American, in 1992. And I bring up a lot of this history of, of this motto because, as part of this context, because this issue of police and corruption and police brutality is something that I think is part of how we should understand Ario Hota's background, his context in the story, and the issues of power, as well as his internal conflict that maybe coming to the front of it and you know in Norvos the bearded priests as we know hold a lot of the political power a theocratic government which you know of course means uh ruled by the priests ruled in the name of god whatever and they train and hold power over the holy guard the holy guard are not just bodyguards right in Norvos are not like the Unsullied in terms of having a private slave military that people can just purchase. The World of Ice and Fire describes the purpose of the Holy Guard as to enforce obedience and keep the peace. That's that's the quote. The Holy Guard is the state patrol slash law enforcement body in Norvos. They're controlled by the theocratic slash, you know, these religious leaders, and it is made up of slave soldiers taken from families who cannot afford to have more children or from the lower classes, and some like Hota do end up being, I guess, dispersed, I don't know, and given as private security guards for the nobility, like Milario's family. And again, you know, I'm saying all this because I'm contextualizing what Doran is doing here, and asking of Hota as I assume that Doran has not often asked Hota to do something truly dishonorable, but here we are seeing him have a moment where he's starting to question his vows, serve, obey, protect. And I think the question here for Hota, as the question is for many of the real world police forces, all right, serve whom? Obey whom? Protect whom? Like, who are these vows actually in service to who's being protected by them and it doesn't look like 
it's the people, right? As Hota is being asked to round up even the children among the Sand Snakes to be held hostage. I mean, Arya Hota is not a knight, right? But it's that same question. What does it mean to protect? Is imprisoning innocent people? Is that is that necessary for, for protection? It's the same question that Jaime and a lot of the other Kingsguard silence within themselves during the reign of Ares. It's really uh, insightful that you called out the LAPD on this. And there is a, from basically, uh, from the policefoundation.org, they have their own version of the Hippocratic Oath, right? Which is one of the most binding documents in history. Uh, written in antiquity. It's, of course, super sacred to doctors, treat the sick to the best of one's ability, preserve patients' privacy, teach the secrets of medicine to the next generation, so on. And there is something that the policefoundation.org has put out that is what the police's Hippocratic Oath might look like. Hippocrates once wrote, of course, wherever the art of medicine is loved, there is also a love of humanity. And the policefoundation.org says that they think it should be said of their noble profession as well. And this would look like, I solemnly swear I fulfill my duty according to the tenets of this oath. I'll honor the tradition and sacrifice of those officers who've preceded me and seek to pass on my knowledge and experience to those who follow my path. I'll faithfully serve and protect my community while recognizing policing is strong medicine and must be delivered at the right dose. I'll remember policing is an art and science. I seek to carry my craft skillfully, judiciously, and with empathy. I remember policing, especially its coercive elements, is not a panacea for social ills. I will not be ashamed to de-escalate, wait for backup, or request assistance. I'll respect the humanity of those who I encounter, both victim and suspect alike. I will treat life as sacrosanct and will only use deadly physical force as a last resort. I'll remember that I do not police an actor behavior, but a flawed human being whose conduct can jeopardize their future and their family. I'll prevent crime when I can for absence of crime and disorders preferable to vis visible evidence of police action. I'll remember my calling is an honorable one, but never set me apart from society or the community I serve. I've been granted authority and am enjoined by duty. Yet I am a member of public and share the same obligation to comply with the laws I'm sworn to uphold. If I do not violate this oath, I will one day retire from public service, having earned the enduring respect of my colleagues and community. So I can already tell you, I mean, looking forward to Ariane's chapters and what Hota does, that this oath, which his oath, obviously, as he continues to say, serve, obey, protect. And I'm sure there are other things that entailed as we get some of the detail of his branding of him being physically mutilated to join this order. Uh, it's a little different, obviously, than what a police officer today might say as part of their own oath, but he's definitely breaks some of these things, right? Like, did Ares Oakhart have to die? Yeah, they definitely could have tried to de-escalate. Uh, Didn't do that, did he? Didn't wait. Ares Oakhart, though, in Ares Oakhart's heart, he's like, I have to die. He's, he's oh, yeah. I mean, he was so head-ass in that moment. He's like, I'm going head first. And it's like, you just think maybe... Like, you know when people put their hand up? Oh, I did this to you at Ice and Fire Con, where you put your hand out when someone's shorter than you, and like, or maybe this was Elena. I did it to someone. I just can't remember. Everyone's so short, as we discussed earlier. 
there's a picture of it somewhere, but where you put your hand out, where the person yeah. like puts their head in your hand and they're trying to get to you, but like you're you're so tall and long and your long limbs stop them just by reaching your arm out. I'm reaching my arm out, but no one can see me. Um to like hold the head. Like he could have just done that for a while at Aries Oakheart, truly. And it felt more like a point being made. And that's what this feels like. Him taking him being commanded to take the sand snakes. Yes, yes, it is to stop the burning before it burns down the whole city because obviously people are incensed, but also people are incensed for a reason. And it's not just because of Oberyn, which I would love for George to explore more of that, right? Like, that's the ticket is like maybe he could explore why else the people might be pissed about Doran because they haven't really had a real ruler for a while. Like, Doran's been half assing it, obviously, phoning it in because he's depressed. And I get that personally, because I'm phoning it in, because I'm depressed and disabled too. Uh, but it, it definitely feels like this is not something that would pass that Hippocratic police oath, you know? It doesn't feel right. Even the little ones, he says. Even the little ones? Exactly. He's like, them? And, and being told to kind of gather this force in secret, and that Doran ascertains this idea of obedience first mm-hmm. and foremost so there's definitely something there that's a, a little more sinister and is being is pushing at those boundaries of those those morals that Ario has been raised well not raised that mm-hmm. Ario thinks that he has he hasn't had to think too deeply on them before I'm sure yeah. he's had to a couple of times but yeah and so we end this chapter with that Moral dilemma. Gather up the others. I shall not sleep until I know that they are safe and under guard. It will be done. The captain hesitated. When this is known in the streets, the common folk will howl. All Doran will howl, said Doran Martell in a tired voice. I only pray Lord Tywin hears them in King's Landing so he might know what a loyal friend he has in Sunspear. Aha! Doran does have a plan. Well, kind of. Tywin can't hear shit. (laughs) Why? Because he's dead. (sighs) So it's so silly to even like chat about a Dornish master plan. It's not amazing. Doran does have a plan. It's split between two red and black and black and red baskets right now, obviously. And he does have a plan. But I would say... It's still more of a plan than the Grand Northern Conspiracy. Just putting that out there. Doran still has more of a plan than the Grand Northern Conspiracy. Yeah. And that's the tea on that. It's a plan. It's just like a really, it's a really elaborate plan. He didn't, also, he was like, agree- he, I think he's afraid to enact on any of it, you know? Like, he's just waiting to see if the good stuff happens. And if that stuff doesn't happen, then maybe he's just like, maybe we just won't. I think Doran has a plan. He's just not a great manager, you know? He's not a mm-hmm. good, he's not a great project manager. Doesn't know, you know, this person's got the best skills for this thing. Let's put this person there. This is how we move things forward. Not a strong suit, you know? Yeah, he could do a little better about that. I mean, like, use your assets, which to be fair, he is, though. So I feel like, and especially the next chapter is going to have a bit more of this detail in it and we'll go into it much more then but i feel like by the end of these chapters he has them in the right position right like he has them going to do the right things and 
I think he's going to be very upset because he sent them with one mission. And as Littlefinger says to us in this book, sometimes pawns have minds of their own. Sometimes those minds decide to do some crazy things, right? So I think that's where we're going to see a lot of this go awry. Especially when... Also with Arya and with the whole, like, fuck you, dad, I do what I want. Exactly. And especially, you know, when Doran seeing himself right now as a sort of, like, game chess master or whatever. And as you're saying about pawns having minds of their own, I mean, like, he's starting to try and emulate some moves that he's seen from other... Not, not the greatest people ever game masters. He's trying to emulate maybe moves from Tywin and Ares and taking and using these children hostage. Yeah, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like Dorne. It feels like we've been introduced to this family and these really, uh, I don't know, Like he seems like a sympathetic character from the very start, right? And by the end, you realize Doran still has some claws. He's not a He's not as soft as we think, and he sat through dealing with those girls all day, those young women coming to him being like, Uncle Doran, can we have war now? And him being like, no, we have war at home. Yeah, he's like, here's your war. God damn it, eat these damn peas and go read your alphabets or something. Let Uncle Doran figure it out. Yeah, he should have maybe brought them into the chat. You know, he should have, like, maybe made a group chat with them and been like, so what do you think about doing this at some point? Yeah, he, he wasn't great at, at telling plans, you know. Uh, but I, you know, he was afraid, right? Because yeah. one loose word, but... Yep, when words are loosed, you can't call them back. That is for sure. Well, <sighs> that's uh, our first of two Oreo episodes... We'll be back with another one next week, of course. And, you know, until then, you know, keep up with us. Let us know if you have any thoughts as well. You know, you can find us on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, over on Twitter. Or maybe you have something that you'd like to, to tell us, send us. You can shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Make sure that you're subscribed to us to find out when the new episodes are up every Friday for the public. We release in a Song of Ice and Fire episode, except for the last Friday of the month where we do a His Dark Materials episode. We are up on many platforms. We're hosted over at Podbean, where you're also able to leave a quick comment, just like Hubit did about an hour ago. And they said, I finally caught up on all the Song of Ice and Fire and Winds of Winter POVs. Now I sit in eager anticipation of every new episode. For those of you counting, 10 POVs down, 21 to go. (laughs) We're also over on iTunes and Spotify, Google Play, you name it, we're probably there. And you can also find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And as we said, for patrons $5 and up, get extra episodes every month. Last month, the episode covered the Under the Regents chapters during the reign of Aegon III. And this month, we will be coming back to La Belle Sauvage, part of the His Dark Materials universe covering some of those chapters, and of course, as we said, we are going to be piloting a Discord channel, beginning first with our Chestnut patrons. Yes, and I hear some rumors of some Avatar The Last Airbender content possibly coming to that. 
possibly Legend of Korra content coming to this beta testing possibly. of Discord. Possibly. Possibly. Uh, I won't spoil much of that because you'll want to hang on to that for later. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe slash Tarlock. Just kidding. Oh my gosh. I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana slash Momo. Oh my god. <laughs> Aww. We'll talk to you guys next week. You would be Momo. I don't know. Am I Appa because I'm taller? <laughs> I think so. I think you could be uh, Appa. Yif yif Appa. And I'm just Bye, running guys. around. Who knows what's happening in my head? That one episode.